The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, here we are at the end of yet another year. Can you believe it? This is our eighth year. We're going into this, our ninth year, year next year. nuts. It's like it's, it was like this year has been eighteen months long. It is it, crazy. It feels that way, doesn't it? But at the end of every year, for those of you who have been listening to the show year in and year out with us, you know that what we do is we do a year end year in review and a year in preview. So what we do, we play along at home. You can do this with us. Uh, we take our three top stories of what we think uh, in in two thousand eighteen were the top stories, and then we pick one story that we think is going to define two thousand nineteen. Uh, we haven't told each other of uh, our stories, so they may be the same. They may be different. We are doing this in the order of priority. So that would mean that the least important leading up to the most important. Uh, so, Kobus, let's get off on a good start and have you kind of talk to us about your number three story of 2018 that you really feel shaped China-Africa relations this year uh, more than any other story except the other two that we're going to talk about. <laughs> this is always quite a, a kind of a tall order. Um, for me, the, okay, the, the number three one, I think on the surface, doesn't seem particularly kind of massive. Um, but I think it has real implications for how the relationship will, will proceed, which is the, the, the micro-trade war and its kind of awkward, you know, kind of, how can I say, like easing over that we've seen between China and Kenya this year. Um, so China has been, ex or China, Kenya has been importing farmed fish from, from China. That caused um, controversy with Kenyan fisher communities um, saying that they're being undercut by, by Chinese imports. That then kind of really kind of blew up in a, in a kind of interesting and unfortunate way where there was a moment where the Chinese embassy was threatening to withdraw funding from, from Kenyan projects and where it seemed to be heading towards a kind of a micro-trade war situation. Before that was kind of hurriedly, you know, resolved. Um, but still, at the moment, the story still keeps going on. Like I saw, I saw um, reports this week that Kenyan authorities have been testing the fish from China and that they're now saying that it contains trace amounts of heavy metals not, albeit higher than kind of World Health Organization standards, but still, you know, it's not fantastic. Um, for me, this was really interesting because it just gave this kind of inkling of what future relationships between Africa and China will be like once they've matured past the kind of development assistance phase we see now. You know, once they're actually actual economic partners rather than, you know, people saying they're economic partners, well, one country massively funds another country's infrastructure building. Um, that, I think, is the, the, the complications of what that relationship is going to be like in the future. Seemed, we seem to get a kind of glimpse of that relationship in this, this controversy. That's uh, a very what, what interesting, do you think? A very, yeah, very, very interesting choice of a story. It was not one on my list, but 
but I think you are right in part because it represents something much deeper. Uh, Professor Joshua Eisenman of the University of Texas, he talks a lot about the power imbalance that exists between China and each individual African state. And, and this is really in many ways, and this ties also into what Howard French, the China-Africa scholar from Columbia University, also talks about, which is the idea of these tributary states. And if you play along with Beijing and you accommodate Beijing, everything is fine. The minute that you start to challenge the Chinese, then all of a sudden you start to encounter real problems. And the, 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 the tariffs on fish were an example of when a smaller country challenged China, and boy, the response was remarkable. In fact, it went one step further than how you described it. The, the acting ambassador, uh, the Chinese ambassador to Kenya, used the phrase trade sanctions. He threatened trade sanctions against Kenya. And now, considering the fact that China is Kenya's largest trading partner, that could potentially be devastating. And that was really, really fascinating because within two weeks of that threat, uh, President Kenyatta, he, he backtracked. Now, that wasn't the only incident in China-Kenya relations this year. If you recall, there was also the um, how Kenyan authorities, right after the FOCAC summit, uh, raided CGTN uh, and also uh, China Daily. Uh, and then kind of perp-walked out uh, various employees on visa violations. That was very interesting. Then there was the young man who went on a racist rant, the young Chinese man who went onto social media and said all sorts of awful things, and uh, he was then deported. And then finally, the really very interesting scenario was some reporting by the Kenyan press on the mistreatment of Kenyans at the hands of Chinese managers who run uh, the Standard Gauge Railway. So this was a very, very turbulent, bumpy year in China-Kenya relations, and I think there was an excellent choice for a number three story. Um, so let me move on to my number three, and in some ways it's a little bit pro forma, and I thought you were actually going to go there with yours. Um, mine was FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit happened this year. It happens every three years. Uh, you know, it's becoming a little bit routine now, these FOCAC summits. We've had, what, seven, six of them now going next time will be the seventh one, I think it is. Um, you know, this is basically now where 50, you know, 52, 51, 52 African leaders kind of make their way to Beijing or to last time it was in Johannesburg uh, in 2015. You know, they come with hat in hand and they say, how much money are we going to get? And now, most of the time, China celebrates in the glory of its big announcement of how many billions of dollars is it going to bestow upon Africa. Well, what was interesting about this year, I thought, was the tone dramatically changed. The tone right after FOCAC was one not of, you know, gratitude or excitement about the $60 billion financial package that was, uh, that was announced, but it really was overshadowed by the debt controversy and the accusations of predatory lending. And I thought this year's FOCAC really shifted and the tone changed in the China-Africa relationship. I completely agree. Um, I also, you know, and this actually relates to some of my my choices higher up. Um, you know, in fact, my my second my second tier choice is exactly this issue. Um, you know, not only FOCAC itself, but that there seems to be a kind of a restructuring of Chinese lending to Africa. You know, a, a, a kind of working out of, of new terms, um, and also that 
there seems to be a kind of a plateauing, I think, of, of, of the level of financing that A, China can give and that B, Africa can absorb. Um, you know, I think it was, um, it was very... Um, significant that the the funding that was offered at this year's FOCAC was exactly the same number, in fact, in, in real terms, slightly less than what was offered in, in 2015 in Johannesburg. Um, and with it came a, a very interesting set of, of um, you know, comments from different, different Chinese power players, including the statement from, from Xi Jinping that they're going to stop, you know, funding, quote, vanity projects which, you know, is interesting because it leaves open a big question about what exactly can be can be classified as a vanity project and what not. And then also indications from, from the Chinese government that they're going to be a, quite a lot more conditions actually related to Chinese lending, including a lot more feasibility studies, you know, being done before. And and the, the, the second phase of the standard gauge railway in Kenya is, stalled at the moment because of of these you know future new set of studies that need to be done so that is actually you know it segues very very kind of smoothly into what was my my second choice which was i think a general kind of restructuring of what chinese funding to africa is going to look like in the future this includes things like the um the implementation um of the uh, the state international development cooperation you know which which now you know forms a, a kind of a center for chinese overseas development assistance which didn't exist before um you know a, a seeming kind of uh, much stronger focus in Beijing on African debt sustainability, on some of the dangers in relation to to African lending, um, the growth of of a kind of quite strong domestic backlash within China about its overseas development assistance, especially to Africa. Um, so all of these come together in my mind to 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 suggest that um, that there's going to be a, a reshaping of what Chinese funding to Africa is, is going to look like. And that is actually taking place independent of all of the Western pressure around debt and around the, the, you know, the funding from China to Africa. I think a lot of that is actually coming from within China um, in, in relation to, to, you know, kind of perceived problems that, that they've faced in Africa before. What do you think? Yeah. So looking back on the conversations that we've had on the show this year, one of the themes that came up repeatedly was have we reached an inflection point in the China-Africa relationship? And a lot of the points that you were bringing up right now about the change in the financial relationship, the reduction in the overall value of the FOCAC package, which I think was actually much more than just a minor reduction. It was actually quite a sizable reduction. Even though they got the number up to $60 billion, the way they got to $60 billion was very, very different than in years past. Not as much in grants, uh, much more in loans and whatnot. But there is this fatigue that seems to be setting in in some quarters of the China-Africa relationship. And I would say it's on both sides. Yes. A lot of people see the Kenyan-Zambian uh, kind of tensions that are bubbling up and they see this frustration that's on the, Chinese, on, the, on, the, on the African side with the amount of debt, particularly on the lack of transparency in a lot of these deals and the frustrations that civil society groups have in the relationships that, that African leaders have with Chinese leaders that they just can't see through what's going on and who's signing what for how much, when, and who's getting paid. That is a big frustration. But I also think there's a fatigue here in China as well. Um, and it was surprising to me after FOCAC, the reaction on social media where people have just had enough. Now, you have to remember that here in China right now, 
uh, people are not really focused at all in what's going on in Africa. Everything is focused on the United States right now and what's happening. And I think that has to be something taken into account, that the Chinese, the leadership, all of Xi Jinping's attention is focused on the U.S.-China trade war and getting out of this and surviving it, if you will. But I also think it's hardening the overall tone of Chinese foreign policy, not just with the United States, but around the world. So they are going to make much harsher, tougher decisions. So when Xi Jinping says he wants to put an end to vanity projects, that might be a precursor to allow them the political cover to start making some very sizable cuts in the China-Africa financial relationship going forward in order to kind of husband their resources for strategically more vital regions in the world, namely the United States uh, relationship. So that is, I think there's a hard thing here on this side as well. Uh, the, the bigger the bigger question, I think, although the bigger, you know, kind of larger narrative on, on the African side of that also is, you know, in the past, the, the narrative has always been, oh, Western lending to Africa is, is, you know, laden with all of these different conditionalities and Chinese lending is no strings attached. You know, that has always been the shorthand and, and that, that is a shorthand that has been used in Africa and in the West and in China. Um, and I think increasingly that is just simply not true. I think, you know, Chinese lending might well have different conditionalities, but they certainly have increasing number of conditionalities and you know and I think increasingly a lot of a lot of the questions that are going to be asked by Chinese lenders are also asked by Western lenders and by African civil society you know including things like who, who's going to pay this back and when and you know kind of an, and how is it really you know is it really going to boost uh, economic growth or not you know because of course you know for all of the kind of hysteria around debt is you get like debt can be very productive economically um, if it's the right debt if it's you know if you're taking on debt for the right reasons and for the right projects, then it can actually boost economic growth. The question is whether each individual debt actually is, you know, productive debt or not. Um, and I think this this is really going to be very interesting, I think, in, in terms of how the relationship between China and Africa goes. And, and you know, because I, 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 certain projects are still going to be funded, you know, but it's going to be very interesting to see which ones are funded and which actually can't get funding anymore. Yeah. So let's go on to our my second choice, which dovetails nicely into what you were just talking about. If 2018 is going to be remembered for anything in the China-Africa relationship, it would be remembered as the year that debt really became the dominant issue. I mean, I say that we, you know, in 2017 and 16, you and I were talking about rhino and ivory uh, pretty much every month, it felt like. And that just dropped off the, the the radar this year, in part because President Xi Jinping announced the uh, the banning of ivory. And for some reason, that just took it all off. In fact, even at FOCAC, there was not a green environmental track. It just went away. But instead, debt was the big issue. And it's something that will that the West has, in some ways, fueled. Certainly, Rex Tillerson and the Americans and the U.S. State Department, they've been talking about this for a long time, but they really amped up their criticism. The international media picked up on that, and then the African media picked up on it, and it's really become part of the narrative. What's hard for people to understand about this is that what's true, what's accurate, what's not, what's rhetoric, what's propaganda is extraordinarily confusing. Uh, So one of the key statistics that I saw this year was although the levels of Chinese debt are going up, 55% of all the interest payments that Africans make on their debt are paid to non-Chinese bondholders, for the most part, euro bondholders. 
and then the China, the amount of the Chinese debt is uh, about 17 uh, interest payments is about 17%. So that means and that's to me the most critical statistic of the year that 17% of all the interest is being paid to Chinese debt holders and then 55% is being paid to everybody else which is mostly eurobond in the United States and and Europe. So three times the amount of interest leaving the continent is going to non-Chinese stakeholders. And so that's in part because the debt is stretched out for the Chinese over much longer periods of time. There's lower interest rates. So again, the amount of debt and the payment are two very, very different things. Nonetheless, all of this gets mixed up into the politics of debt. And this year, particularly in Kenya and Zambia, the politics of debt are becoming domestic political issues and they are really shaping the entire narrative of the China-Africa relationship. And I think next year we're going to be talking a lot more about debt as well. Yeah, debt has completely came to dominate the the conversation about China Africa as a whole, and 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 in, in very interesting ways, kind of really um, reversed and flipped, you know, narratives that we've seen up to now. You know, so so you you know up, up to now we've seen, you know, African governments and China and the Chinese government both being very outwardly very positive about all financing coming from China to Africa. Um, now both sides are have you know are in positions where they have to actually explain financing from China to Africa. You know, b- both to their domestic constituencies and to the to the global um, community. Um, and so it really gives you this idea of how this this kind of drumbeat um, coming, I think, originally coming out of Washington of of the the kind of predatory lending um, has really changed the narrative around all financing coming to Africa, actually. Um, and then, you know, how it also then obscures a bunch of, of other issues, including, as you say, the, um, you know, the amount of of interest Africa pays on debt, where that interest goes, like how much Western debt Africa holds, how much Western private debt Africa holds. Um, and, you know, so, so for example, like like uh, I saw a statistic a few years ago where, where um the for a long time japan actually received more per year on interest on japanese loans than from the actual actual kind of overseas development assistance it pays out you know so so the certain people are making money out of debt it's just not africa um and you know i think i think if if the debt controversy actually uncovers some of these some of these realities then great but so far it's it's just been such a kind of a a whirlwind of of kind of half truths and misinformation. I, I found it quite quite dispiriting, actually. Like you know, kind of how even really high level journalists, very prominent you know commentators and so on, just just kind of repeat these half digested half truths about this issue. Yeah, and it's one thing that I think is going to get worse in the future because I mixed into all of this now are domestic politics in places like Zambia, where politicians are using the debt issue and the concerns over debt in order to challenge their rivals. And particularly in in Zambia with President Edgar Lungu, who is becoming increasingly authoritarian, and people are using the Chinese as you know, basically, you know, an easy villain to target because they just, they don't respond. And again, we've talked about this over and over again, how the Chinese are just incompetent, inept. I don't know what it is, but boneheaded, however you want to describe it in terms of how they manage their communications. And they always complain that they're being poorly treated, but at the end of the day, they don't actually engage in a discussion with people, particularly with civil society. If they actually kind of stepped out 
of the elite halls of palaces and, and, and government ministries and talked to people and worked with civil society groups and had a dialogue and, and showed people what they're doing, I think they would get a much better take. Uh, but it's not in their instincts. It's not in their DNA. And it's certainly not in this day and age with the type of politics that the Chinese are doing in some ways because of what I talked about earlier, this hardened approach to, to geopolitics that not just the Chinese are doing, but certainly the Americans and others are also engaging in. Um, but it really does hurt them at the end of the day in that they're not being able to to kind of fight back on this. That being said, the lack of transparency on these debt deals is a problem, and it's a problem for everybody. Um, there are now allegations, and not to, they have not been confirmed yet, but that the port of Mombasa is uh, potentially uh, vulnerable to uh, to a very similar type of situation that happened in Sri Lanka, where the, where the Exim Bank of China could use that as a piece of collateral. I've seen some documentation to that effect, uh, and now it's starting to be reported in the Kenyan press that that may be the case. This presents enormous challenges to the Chinese and how they manage their narrative of, does this look like win-win? And that's what the Chinese say. So now we have a big problem, which is major key assets of infrastructure are potentially vulnerable if the debt is not being able to be repaid. Now, here's the interesting thing, Cobus. And again, this was in our show earlier this year with Judy Moore, who's the former uh, public works minister from Liberia. And he said that all the hype and all of the concern about Chinese debt, there is yet to be a country that has defaulted on Chinese debt. Again, Sri Lanka is a very, very interesting case that is exceptional in many reasons, and it's not necessarily applicable to what's going on in Africa. But even Judy Moore, who said, let's use Sri Lanka, of all of the lending that the Chinese have done around the world, not just in Africa, but in the Caribbean, in South Asia, in South America, and there's really only one instance, which is Sri Lanka. So I think we need to give a little bit of the benefit of the doubt to the Chinese as well, that they are renegotiating a lot of the debt in Africa. At least four countries have had their debt either extended, uh, wiped out, or renegotiated in the past year. That is something that they deserve credit for. And the optics of an African government falling under the weight of Chinese debt is just terrible and would really set back the Chinese agenda, not just in Africa, but elsewhere around the world, because so many people are looking at the Chinese under a microscope for these things. So I think in, in that sense, they do deserve a little bit of slack because I really am skeptical that they will they would allow an African government to fall under the weight of, of, of Chinese debt and that it would be renegotiated or something would happen just because it would feed right into what the Americans and the West and the worst fears about what people are saying about the Chinese debt loads. I completely agree. You know, the the amount of money that they would get back through some kind of asset seizure would be completely dwarfed by the, the kind of larger impact it would have on the entire Belt and Road Initiative. Um, like, I, I did a, I did a, I led an event a while ago at SIA, um, where where we were discussing the the debt issue, and I, I raised the question saying, like, look, if if country X you know, if, if it turns out country X in Africa is, is, is about to default on their debt, what do, what happens next now, you know, with, with China? And the, everyone just said, well, it will essentially be a meeting and then the debt will be rescheduled. 
because there isn't really any other option reputationally. You know, the the idea of of this port now being taken over by China that that has such kind of ramifications for the, for China's entire kind of you know foreign expansion project that it in the end it, it's not really worth it. You know, even like it's it, it would actually be rather be you know be be more. Uh, worthwhile for China to actually eat some of that debt rather than rather than kind of leaning on this on on these small countries, you know. Um, and uh, we we should also then you know kind of mention that that a significant part of the FOCAC package this year, the I think ten billion dollars of it was actually in the form of debt forgiveness. So you know, so again, you know, China China is not playing is is not playing the same game as as the West frequently presents it to to be, which does not mean that that um, these debts are without without threats to African sovereignty. It's just that the threat I think is is more subtle and more complicated than it's frequently made out to be. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Okay, let's now get a drum roll if I had it. So imagine we had a drum roll. What is your top story of 2018 uh, in the China-Africa relationship? It's one that you've actually also alluded to, which is the the increasing kind of emergence of what seems to be a kind of a that the logic of a kind of a cold war zero sum competition between western actors and china and africa is increasingly gaining traction in large capitals in the west um that especially in the us we've seen narratives of the containment of china and africa coming you know especially being quite visible in um, in john bolton's um you know recently announced um new us china africa china policy i mean africa policy but um the us's newly announced um, policy on africa um contains a lot of discussion about containing china in africa and also russia um and so for me, we've seen this developing slowly over the entire year, and and the the the, the kind of seizing on a narrative of of China using debt as a way to entrap African countries seems to me to be fit into a wider U.S. narrative of of having to contain. China generally, but but more specifically, of focusing on the Belt and Road Initiative and 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 the investment via the Belt and Road Initiative in developing countries. Um, so the announcement of the Build Act and the, the Prosper Africa Initiative um, by the U.S. government. Um, these these announcements of new kind of investment plans in Africa, new ways of of dealing with African countries. All of these you know, fit into a, a, a kind of a larger narrative that, um, or it seems to me anyway, that there's this kind of like zero-sum geostrategic game being played in Africa, um, this time between the U.S. and China. Um, you and, uh, you yeah. and I have the same number one story. That oh, is, that's ex- that, There it is, you know. We really don't actually compare notes before the show on this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I put the John Bolton speech uh as as really a milestone. I mean, this was an important event. Uh, it, you know, it took them a year to come up with this new Africa strategy, which 
is surprising to me that it took that mm-hmm. long because mm-hmm. it really wasn't that substantive. I was like, what are you working on for a year? But what it represents is really, really important because now Africa is on the agenda in Washington, not necessarily for the right reasons, not necessarily for the benefit of Africa, but people now, when you say Africa in Washington, they're listening because in the context of the Chinese and the Russians and the Bolton speech. And I think the rhetoric is going to get much, much tougher. Um, I think the fact, the United States engagement in Africa is going to change. And in some ways, we're hearing that if the United States starts pulling out of UN peacekeeping operations, their support, for example, as Bolton said that he will, uh, that opens up the opportunities for the Chinese to expand their role in many ways. So the the power dynamic between the Chinese and the Americans is going to play out in Africa. Um, I reject wholeheartedly the narratives that people are saying is that this is a new scramble for Africa. This is a new Cold War that's emerging in Africa where you're going to have proxy armies that are kind of fighting each other or whatnot. I don't think anything like that's going to happen. I think these kind of this is the same garbage when people talk about comparing the, you know, the Chinese to neo-imperialists or neo-colonialists. We can't keep going back to the past to find references for what's happening today and what's going to happen tomorrow because these are totally new paradigms that we're operating in. So this is not a new Cold War in my opinion. This is something entirely but, uh, I different. Mean, but I mean, the Bolton statement seems to cast it in in Cold War terms, though. Well, it, it, I mean, this is a, you know, this in, is, a, in, this in is the language of, example, of geostrategic uh, competition. Yes, but I don't necessarily. I mean, Cold War to me was, and I got into a little bit of a Twitter spat with some with some folks on this one, and and Cold War to me, you know, meant that there are coalitions and there's an ideology. Now, the Americans certainly have an ideology. But I don't think the Chinese do. I think the Chinese mm-hmm. are mercantilists at the end of the day. And yes. there's no coalition behind the Chinese. There's no client states that are lining up in support of the Chinese who say, I believe in this. Everybody is, their interests are aligned with the Chinese, but I don't think their their ideologies are. I don't yeah, think no, the I Kenyans or Botswanans or anybody and, uh, else, uh, when, they just see I that trade is going back and forth. There's a logic being pushed here. What I mean is it's being pushed from the Trump administration, you know, not not necessarily by the other players in, in the relationship. The, you know, there seems to be a kind of a, a somewhat nostalgic, like a 1980s throwback way of talking about, you know, the, about the Belt and Road Initiative as if it's some kind of Soviet initiative. Um, but are you, you know, just I'm not taking into, into account the complexity of, of what it actually is. But are you, maybe that's just you reading into it that way. I mean, I don't, I haven't heard them actually say. It. I mean, they're talking about how. They, they say lots of negative, bad things about the Belt and Road and the debt trap and predatory lending and whatnot, and they are attacking a geopolitical rival in in using a similar kind of dramatic language that they talked about the Soviets 40 years ago. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the infrastructure of a Cold War, ideological or physical, is necessarily there. So that so I guess I just I feel like we're taking 20th century concepts and applying them to 21st century conflicts. And I don't necessarily think that they fit nicely or neatly in that. There is a rivalry. There's no doubt. There's going to be a challenge. There's going to be a shifting of resources and priorities among the Americans. I think the Americans are blowing a very, very big opportunity in Africa. I mean, think about this. This was, you know, Lena Ben Abdallah. She made a very, very good point immediately after the Bolton speech. How can the Americans think that they're going to be able to appeal to the hearts and minds of African countries when they've banned immigration or banned travel from several African countries into the United States, when free trading privileges with Rwanda were taken away, when, you know, all the disrespect that's happened over the past year is not forgotten by people. 
That being said, you've talked about this on many occasions, that despite the incompetence of the Trump administration and their management of Africa policy, despite all the negative things that have happened, American pop culture remains incredibly powerful in Africa. And that is not going to change. And Chinese pop culture and soft power will never be able to compete with that. Now, I don't know if there's a connection between hard power and soft power in terms of how Africans view the United States. I think it varies country to country. But that is something that we can't discount. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, definitely. A, a, a few points relating to this. Um, the for me, one of the one of the most striking um, parts of the Bolton um, statement was that he didn't mention, if I remember correctly, and I know um, that he doesn't mention the African Union. Uh, very much or at all, um, and that all of the discussion about how they, you know, there's a lot of talk about how they're going to be increasing trade with Africa, but he very pointedly mentions that all of those negotiations are going to be bilateral. Um, so, A, it, it then raises questions about what AGOA is going to be like, you know, and of course, uh, you know, AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, which which allows, you know, tariff-free entrance to the U.S. markets for, for a, a number of African products. That is coming up for review in 2025. So there's there's a kind of exploration of the date on that anyway. But it raises questions about what particularly what kind of value the US puts in African the African declaration of the African free uh, continental free trade air agreement. You know, so the, so so you see Africa moving towards greater multilateralism, um, both in trade and in in governance. You know, via the African Union, even though those are still you know early days, the African Union is still relatively weak. And China has been, you know, quite forward, like stepping quite, you know, forward quite proactively in terms of, of, of declaring support for the African Union and, you know, kind of funding African Union initiatives. But, but it's not but, surprising that Bolton would say he doesn't he didn't mention the African Union because if listen, the Trump administration hates NATO, the European Union, they kill TPP. They don't believe in any of these multilateral institutions, much less a multilateral institution that is housed in a building that was built by the Chinese and a multilateral institution that has really been largely ineffective in many ways that the Americans would value. So to them, they'd be like, yeah, forget it. Get rid of the AU. They don't care about that. Yeah, but that's what I mean is uh, when, I, when I say that the initiative is weirdly 1980s nostalgic. You know, kind of it, it, it seems to underestimate the the complexity of where Africa is at the moment. Um, another another example is that the, the, the Bolton statement doesn't seem to make any acknowledgement that different African countries have different development needs. They seem to d discuss all of them as if they're all the same. Um, you know, and, and being Ethiopia at this moment in time is very different from being South Sudan at this moment in time, right? Kind of the, the kind of... And so you have a whole bunch of African countries that are sitting, they're facing a kind of a speed bump to development. They've done a certain amount of development and they need a kind of a boost to get into the next level. There's zero, you know, kind of acknowledgement of that, that, that certain African countries are facing that situation and others are not in, in that statement. So again, there seems to be very little actual engagement with what Africa is actually, what Africa actually needs, including zero engagement with, with the actual development plan that Africa has set out for itself, which is agenda, the, the AU's agenda 2063. Um, you know, so again, it's like, it's, you know, again, it, it gives me this weird feeling of like a, like a Reaganite you know, kind of measure, you know, where, where Africa is this kind of like weirdly flattened, blandly the same kind of area far away. And there's very little actual engagement of what with what the realities on the ground is. 
Okay, well, let's look ahead now to 2019. Those were our three stories each in 2018. We both agreed that debt is was the, was really the main narrative that we have, in fact, reached an inflection point in China-Africa relations and that the U.S.-China relationship is going to have a major, massive impact on Africa. So now, looking forward to 2019, what do you think is one story? We won't say the story because it's hard to tell at this point, but what do you think is going to be one story that people should keep an eye on in the year ahead? Oh, I, okay. <laughs> I found it difficult to, to choose one, so I kind of have two awkwardly joined. Um, one is an, an interesting article that came out um, at the New York Times, I think today, talking about how there's sections of the Belt and Road Initiative that um, seem to be you know, kind of being somewhat militarized, and they were particularly focusing on Pakistan. Um, now, a lot of this article is is filled with some of these kind of, you know, somewhat wild and woolly, you know, talk about about debt and so on that that, that we've been criticizing. They are, however, making the, the an, in, an interesting point that um, that what is one of the issues that is at, at stake um, in China's engagement with Pakistan in relation to the Belt and Road is an expansion of, of or, or a kind of a conflict between two different military GPS systems. One that is arranged, one is that's arranged out of China, and another one that this U.S. dominated. Um, so there's a question about which you know, kind of military GPS system Pakistan is going to use. And then, you know, that comes down to a lot of a lot of the issues um, in relation to what Chinese lending and, you know, and an investment along the Belt and Road, especially into, you know, assets that could be both both um, civilian and military, like ports, for example, or airports. Um, you know, what that, the, the expansion of data and logistic networks from China is going to mean, actually, and, and what the geopolitical impact of that's going to mean. The I think these could be interesting in relation to the Horn of Africa, um, because obviously that's where a lot of these kind of geopolitical issues uh, land on the ground in Africa, because, because of the, both the Chinese and American bases um, in Djibouti. But I think it could also be interesting in relation to African islands like Mauritius and the Seychelles, um, which has seen a lot of geostrategic kind of jostling between between um, China and India, and then also because of the you know the the, the Washington sponsored concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific, um, which India is you know a, a kind of a partner in. So I think that could be one interesting one. The other one is uh, yeah, go ahead, yeah. No, I was just going to say because that echoes a, a lot of what our guests this year were also saying, that the relationship is transitioning from a purely trade and economic and investment relationship to one that is more political military. And so the rise of, uh, of a military, of deepening military ties and the expansion of, of, of Chinese military presence on the continent, I think is something that we're going to see. Uh, it was very much a major theme at FOCAC this year, where in the run-up to FOCAC, uh, China brought over 50 military chiefs to spend two weeks in Beijing. And I think these these military-to-military -military ties are deepening. There was an article that crossed this past week as well on how Rwanda is buying more uh, Chinese military hardware. And a lot of African militaries are familiar with the Soviet-slash-Chinese uh, hardware infrastructure and the setup. 
And so they're continuing that. And also Chinese hardware is coming in a lot cheaper. So in addition to the bases, what you're talking about, the military, the broader military relationship is something to keep an eye on. Excellent point. What was your second point that you were going to make? The second one is the, the recent announcement that Alibaba, the Chinese tech giant, an e-commerce giant, is going to launch something called the Electronic World Trade Platform in Rwanda. Um, now, this is um, supposed to um, to facilitate e-commerce um, in Africa, but also to facilitate the use of e-commerce to export Rwandan products to China. Now, Rwanda is a is a major producer of coffee, um, and coffee is a is grow, is a growing as a growing market in China, um, and. At the moment, what's very interesting is that this actually offers quite a better deal to to Rwandan farmers um, than other than something like Agoa uh, offers. So, for every sixteen dollars, um, a, a, a Rwandan coffee farmer, um, you know, kind of for every sixteen dollars of Rwandan coffee um, sold in in China. 12 of those dollars go back to Rwanda, whereas in the US case, it's eight dollars on you know on on a 16 dollars sale um so that is it's interesting for me for a bunch of reasons in the first place because it it's so starkly you know contrast with, with the us's um used clothing fight that they had with rwanda um also that it is not a chinese government you know sponsored situation this is chinese private sector increasingly you know kind of becoming interested in africa and be, particularly becoming interested in the african tech sector um i think the, the the rapid development of the african tech sector is a story that not but people are not paying enough attention to um I was at a conference a while ago uh, where someone who's high up in the the UN Economic Commission for Africa um, mentioned to me that there's actually quite a lot of of you know tech offshoring happening to Africa now. There's actually work apparently being done by um, by these kind of coding farms in Nairobi for clients like NASA in the US. Um, so and and also some some of the companies in the US that are interested in um, self driving cars are, are doing you know some of some of the the coding is being for that is being done in Nairobi apparently. So there is there is you know the the development of the African tech sector generally is very interesting and then this kind of buy-in and the potential of of uh, some kind of of trade between the two countries being being shaped by the Chinese private sector I think could be potentially very interesting this is uncanny because for the first time in eight years of you and I doing the show, not only do we have the same number one story, but we have the same forward-looking story. Mine's a little bit more specific, but it is about the rise of Chinese tech that is now starting to come in a major, major way. So already a Chinese company, Transin, um, which makes the techno phones, controls about 34% of the Chinese of the African smartphone market. They control somewhere north of about 50 to 60% of the feature phone market because the Nokia brand is owned by Chinese companies as well, and uh, Honhai, which is uh, Foxconn. So the Chinese have enormous presence in the device market. But we're now, this past year, we've seen the arrival of uh, artificial intelligence companies, Cloudwalk and HIK Vision, Hikvision. Hikvision set up a an office in, in, Johannes, in Johannesburg and Cape Town as well, and Cloudwalk is doing a deal with the Zimbabwe government. These are the facial recognition companies that are very, very common here in China, that are now starting to make their way into Africa as well. You talked about Alibaba, uh, Tencent, and WeChat, which is the the, uh, the the super app 
that is a third owned by Naspers, is now starting to make its way into Africa in a meaningful way, mostly with Chinese businesses and Chinese tourists. It's really not meant for African consumers, but yet there's still about 100 million Chinese who are traveling overseas, about 60 million Chinese diaspora that are overseas. And we're starting to see now that WeChat is, is targeting them, making it easier now to kind of send money back and forth and for Chinese tourists to, to move seamlessly through through the through 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 Africa without any problems, so the tech side is really starting to happen in a very very big way. I also think Huawei is going to be very interesting to watch this year because as they get shut out now of the Five Eyes market, which is New Zealand, Canada, the UK, Australia, and the United States uh, for security reasons, they're going to start looking much more to the global South to make up for that loss of market share. So Africa for Huawei will be very, very important. Uh, and that will probably be the same for companies like ZTE as well. So we're probably going to see in the year ahead the Chinese, the major Chinese telecom operators coming into the market. Uh, Chinese auto manufacturers, and it's not really directly tech, but it's partly tech, will also probably make a much bigger play, particularly as the domestic auto market here in China is starting to slow. They're going to have to look for new markets. They're setting up big manufacturing operations in Cameroon, in Algeria, in Tunisia. And of course, there's a lot going on in South Africa. So tech and automotive are the big things that I'm keeping my eye on for, for this year or for yeah, next year, if, 2019. If I could add one, one little thing there. In, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about, about the, the strength, the continued strength of, of, um, of U.S. soft power in Africa and particularly the, the influence of U.S. pop culture in Africa. And I think that's very, very true. Um, but I think the, what we're going to see, and I, I've, been, I've been drum beating this for a while and people were thinking I'm crazy and people might still think I'm crazy, but I think that with the growth of the rapid expansion of the internet, thanks to you know, players like Huawei increasingly being contained to the global south, what we are, we are, I think, already witnessing, and we're about to witness in the next decade, a real global explosion of African pop culture. Um, Netflix is moving into Africa. They, they've announced their first, their first series uh, by a South African producer. Um, there's been collaborations between African pop stars and a whole bunch of fashion brands, including with, with Versace and with Moschino. Um, you're seeing that the, the heating up of Johannesburg, Cape Town, Lagos, Nairobi, as these kind of pop culture centers increasingly. And I think as the continent gets more wired over the next few years, that's going to really increase, especially because it's the youngest continent in the world, you know, so so it's it's the natural, the natural kind of economic kind of growth point will be music and fashion. Um, and I think we're already seeing it happening. And I think the this kind of um, hidden Chinese aspect to it um, is going to really, I think, change the game in terms of, of, of the spread of, of, of African pop culture around the world. Okay. Well, that's a lot to think about. Those are three stories <laughs> with a couple more than just the one for the year ahead, because I think there's a lot going on. This relationship is going to be changing a lot. There's there's no doubt. I mean, again, you and I, when we started this eight years ago, we thought, how are we going to keep this up? I mean, after a year or two, we got to run out of topics. And I think it's evident now that we're never going to run out of topics. I mean, that's for sure. <laughs> so here we are, the eighth year of the China Africa Project coming to a close. We're going into our ninth year. Uh, so we have done now 444 shows. This is our 444th show, uh, which That's is, crazy. isn't that amazing? And it's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger 
over the years. Uh, the the online presence has gotten bigger. We're up to a million followers now across all of our platforms. Um, that kind of gives me chills, and in part because it's just it's exciting that we've created this community that you can be a part of. And one of the things I think that really gives Cobus and I so much pleasure is when students and when think tank scholars and when people reach out to us and they tell us that you know we've helped them kind of shape their ideas on how to think about China-Africa relations, mostly through our guests who are incredibly smart and that we've had a contribution to it and that you guys appreciate it so much. It just makes us feel so incredibly, you know, just proud of our community that we've built and how really smart everybody is who participates on our LinkedIn forums, on Facebook, who emails us, who we meet at conferences. And I just, I need to tell you that I am so grateful to everybody who's part of this community. And I really, I just love every single day that we commit ourselves to doing this, to posting every five hours on Facebook and every day on Twitter and every day on LinkedIn and creating the show. It's a little bit exhausting, but um, now when we're a couple hours late in posting the show, I'm getting emails saying, where's the show? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's so exciting. And that's what motivates us to keep going. So at the end of the year, uh, I just want to give a real heartfelt thanks to all of you who listen. Um, you're, you're really, you, you just, I, I don't have words for it. I'm just so I'm just so proud of everything that we all do together, and that we're enhancing this conversation uh, as a group. Yes, completely. And I, I have to admit that because I've had a crazy busy year, I was sometimes a little delinquent on social media, and I sometimes disappeared off the side of the horizon, mostly because I was sometimes just hiding under my desk <laughs> um, but uh, 2019 is going to be my year of, of, of full social media engagement so so you know kind of I'll be I'll be more more voluble on social media coming and expect in this coming a year. new kind of more voluble that's good a new opinionated Cobus <laughs> is going to get out there and start yes, picking I'll fights with the Twitter the trolls that I was hoping to become <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have a lot of exciting things planned for 2019 things that I'm dreaming up in my head right now and some some really cool things. And so over the months that are coming, I'm going to let you guys know about what's going on and and some, you know, we're really going to try and take this to the next level next year. And so if you're interested in China, Africa and all the things that we're doing, this is going to be a great year for you as well. Uh, so once again, we hope that all of you have, uh, you know, just a wonderful holidays, whatever you're celebrating. Uh, you know, there's so many different holidays of all the different people that we that we communicate with every week. And so whatever your, your your time that you're doing together with your families, we wish you the very best. And we're really excited for seeing you next year. We're going to take a week off. That's normally what we do. We do 50 shows a year. This is one of those weeks that we uh, that we go dark. So this show will be up for two weeks. And then we will be back in January, and we've already got a lot of guests booked in January for some very exciting shows on tech, on China-Africa literature and fiction. That's going to be a new one that we've never done before. And we're going to pick up the wildlife issue a little bit. It's fallen off the radar, but wildlife and conservation is something that we don't want to, to forget about. So those are coming up in uh, in January as well. So for Cobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Once again, thank you for a wonderful year together, and thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>